Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. If your honor didn't see, everybody else in the country saw Marsha Clark walking out after one of the jurors was disqualified, giving another prosecutor a thumbs-up sign. We have an affidavit here that Mr. Darden told Mr. Cochran, we got your boy. He helped defend and win an acquittal for O.J. Simpson in his double murder trial. Now, Alan Dershowitz is here to tell us how he would defend YNW Melly. I'm Anjanette Levy, and welcome to Law & Crime's Sidebar Podcast. We are in the first week of the trial of YNW Melly. His legal name is Jamel Demons. The state says the evidence shows that Melly killed his friends, Chris Thomas, who went by Juvie, and Anthony Williams, known as Sack Chaser. The defense says the case was botched by the cops. Melly faces the possibility of the death penalty if convicted. In fact, he's the first person in Florida to face the possibility of the death penalty since the threshold for imposing it was lowered to eight to four. It does not have to be a unanimous vote by the jury anymore because of a recent law change. Joining me to discuss defending YNW Melly is Alan Dershowitz. He's a professor emeritus of law at Harvard University. Also, he's the author of a new book called Get Trump, The Threat to Civil Liberties, Due Process, and Our Constitutional Rule of Law. Professor Dershowitz, welcome back to Sidebar. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. It's always nice to have you. And I, I know that you have, obviously, the experience of defending O.J. Simpson and uh, many other people. But this case is interesting because it's taken more than four years to get to trial. And also, there isn't DNA evidence that we know of connecting Melly to the crime. They never found the firearm involved in the crime, in the murders. So there are things that they don't have, but there are things the state says it does have. One of those things is cell phone evidence. And the prosecutor in this case, Christine Bradley, said that Melly's cell phone tracked with the two murder victims' cell phones up until 15 minutes before Cortland Henry, the co-defendant, showed up at the hospital with their bodies in the car. So let's listen to Christine Bradley explain why she thinks this is significant. So ladies and gentlemen, you have individuals in two cars and all of the cell phone tracks together. Going across 595, going until they get to Miramar Parkway and 184th. At 184th, the red Mitsubishi goes south. And you will then see it at 3.50 a.m. going through the guard gate at Sunset Lakes. That was the gated community in which the individuals were all living at the time of this homicide in October of 2018. On the Sunset Lakes guard video, the red Mitsubishi goes through, the gray Jeep doesn't. The gray Jeep instead goes north and then proceeds to go to the actual scene of the homicides. The gray Jeep goes north on 184th up to Pines Boulevard. From Pines Boulevard, it travels west all the way to the edge of the Everglades, where it is desolate, where it is dark, 
where there are no witnesses. Okay, so what do you think of uh, what she just said there about how these cell phones track and how, you know, they end up eventually at the scene of the homicides? Well, this is clearly a a 21st century uh, case. Um, Cases back in the day uh, never had cell phone tracking. You would have eyewitnesses. Uh, Late in the last century, we developed DNA evidence, but the tracking evidence is... um, dramatic and and interesting. It it almost never provides a full theory of guilt, but it often provides information that uh, disputes theories of innocence. Uh, It's a circumstantial piece of evidence, but it's it's fairly substantial. What always is shocking to me is that people who are guilty or who do commit crimes take their cell phones with them. Um, You would think people know enough about tracking and cell phones uh, so that if they're going to do something and want to hide those facts from uh, the authorities, they would leave their cell phones home. I was involved in a, a case like that recently where the cell phone was not brought in, and the authorities uh, had a problem uh, with the tracking. So cell phone evidence is, is strong circumstantial evidence, not of the crime itself, but of presence. And that's one of the elements that uh, prosecutors always want to prove and have to prove in a case like this. Let's listen to what the defense attorney, David Howard, says about the cell phone evidence in this case that the state contends is so damning. They have no motive. Their entire case is hinged upon the technology of a phone they claim to have been in Mr. DeMonza's possession. What they fail to tell you is that they have come across evidence that Mr. DeMons got out of that car before this incident. They ignore that because it's not consistent with their feet. What they fail to tell you is that phone comes back to the name of somebody other than Jamal DeMons. What they forgot to tell you is that their own witness will tell you that yes, that phone and Mr. Williams' phone and a number of other phones were all in the same account and all of the people in the house used to use them interchangeably. So he's calling into question whether or not Melly is the one who actually had that phone. Earlier in the state's opening statement, Professor Dershowitz, uh, Christine Bradley said that you see Melly with the phone in his hand on surveillance footage and that he's playing with it before the homicides as they're leaving the recording studio. But the defense attorney is saying anybody could have had that. There are other people who could have had possession of that particular phone. So what we see is a clash of circumstantial evidence on both sides. That is the prosecution's evidence presents a kind of prima facie case that a cell phone that easily could be attributable to the possession of the defendant. And then the defense says, but wait a minute, that's circumstantial evidence. Let's give you some circumstantial evidence. There were other people who had access to that phone and uh, he left the car. So it's a battle of circumstantial evidence. Generally, defendants win battles of circumstantial evidence. Now, here there's more than the circumstantial evidence of the cell phone. But the cell phone evidence alone would not seem to satisfy the beyond a reasonable doubt standard, not necessarily as a matter of law, 
but as a matter of uh, the reality of jury deliberations, I can I can see a strong argument being made by the defense about reasonable doubt based on the two accounts regarding the cell phone. Just five years after Purdue Pharma began distributing OxyContin, it became the number one painkiller sold in the U.S. But despite the company's claims, it would prove to not only be addictive, but deadly. In just over two decades, over a half a million in the U.S. have died from an overdose involving opioids. American Scandal is a podcast from Wondery that takes you deep into the most infamous scandals in American history, from presidential lies to environmental disasters and corporate fraud. In their newest season, they look at the story of OxyContin, a painkiller that started an epidemic of opioid abuse and drug addiction. It was supposed to offer new lives to patients suffering from chronic and debilitating pain. But as overdoses began ravaging communities across the country, citizens, journalists, and prosecutors were ready to fight back and hold the pharmaceutical industry accountable for its lies. Follow American Scandal wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music or the Wondery app. Let's look now at some of the other evidence that the state says it has. Uh, this was pretty interesting to me that Christine Bradley says that Melly was basically a member of a gang and that he was engaging in some activity around the time of the homicides about a loyalty oath to the gang. So let's take a listen. So what you will learn from the evidence, from the Instagram, from the private messages, was that Jamel Demons is a member of the G-Shine Blood set. This is not a stage personality. This is not an actor that's playing a character. This was his real life. Ladies and gentlemen, you will see that as soon as October 24th, Two days before the homicide, Jamel Demons is learning the oath of loyalty to the G-Shine blood set. You're going to see things in these messages that will be indicative of blood membership. For example, any time a word would normally be spelled with a C, as in Charlie, they don't use that they replace it with the letter B. So instead of saying, I'm at the crib, they say, I'm at the rib. Why, ladies and gentlemen? Because C is associated with cribs. B is for bloods. So if you look through all the messages, you will notice time and time again, Jamel Demons is dropping C's and using B's. And you're gonna see pictures you're going to see videos of the defendant doing something called stacking, which is a way to show a gang affiliation and to broadcast it to the world. And this is not just in music videos. This is not just in lyrics, because we're not gonna get into that. That's artistic expression. That's not why we are here today. So she's saying that he was in a gang and she's almost making it sound like this could have been part of the loyalty oath to the gang committing these homicides. That sounds like a real stretch. Uh, that's not the kind of evidence that uh, juries generally will say uh, satisfies the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, it raises suspicions, it's guilt by association, uh, people don't like gang members, uh, all of that. 
Um, but um, were the victims gang members too? That's the other question. What was their association? What was their affiliation? It's getting very speculative. Now, you get convictions based on circumstantial evidence if it builds one on top of the other. So far from what I've heard, the building does not lead to the general conclusion of guilt beyond uh, a reasonable doubt. I know there's also a, a so-called admission uh, or a statement that may be suggestive of some admission. Uh, things like that often tie together the external circumstantial evidence. So in a case like this, that could be somewhat important, even though standing alone, uh, it would be ambiguous. It's a combination of all the circumstances that could lead a jury to find a guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but it could also lead a jury to say, look, yeah, it's very possible that this happened, but uh, we're not satisfied that it's been proved beyond a reasonable doubt. That remains to be seen. But if the prosecution is saying, look, he's a gang member, here's our evidence showing he's a member of this blood gang, how do you push back against that as a defense attorney? Or do you kind of just leave that out there and not, not contest it too much because you're almost bringing more attention to it? Well, if the evidence is overwhelming of gang membership and the evidence that you put on about changing letters and stuff like that seems fairly, fairly compelling, they might ultimately introduce an expert on gangs, don't know. Um, you know that, that could be uh, somewhat compelling. Um, uh, and it depends. I mean, the, the hardest job a defense attorney has is to assess the state's case and see what impact it's having on the jury to determine whether to try to respond or ignore it. You do both at great risk. That's why being a defense attorney is such a subtle and difficult uh, job. You can't do it by the books. You always have to see how the state's evidence seems to be resonating with the jury. Are they shaking their heads? Are they leaning forward? Are they accepting the argument that's being made? And, and if they are, you may have to respond. If they're not, uh, you might be better off uh, moving on to different issues where you have the strength and they have the weakness. That's what defense attorneys have to do if they're going to really be very good at it. And uh, I, I, I don't have uh, an ability to assess this particular defense attorney's uh, savvy or ability, but I can tell you in general, those are very, very hard judgment calls, whether to respond to what may be weak evidence and strengthen it or to ignore it, thereby saying to the jury, look, we don't even take this seriously. Hard question. Let's look now at the prosecutor describing how Juvie and Sack Chaser, the fatal wounds, the wounds that actually took their lives, uh, where they were fired from. And this is really important because literally in the hour or so, maybe even 40 minutes before the homicides are believed to have been committed, we have surveillance video from the recording studio showing all four men getting into the Jeep. And Melly is getting into the back driver's side seat. So he was sitting in that back seat. And they say that's very important because the shots, the fatal shots were fired from the back seat. Take a listen. The fatal wounds for Christopher Thomas and Anthony Williams are coming from inside the vehicle from the rear driver's side passenger going out towards the passenger side. The other interesting thing the medical examiner's office is going to tell you is that when the drive-by 
was staged at 4.02 a.m., the victims were already dead. The medical examiner will be able to testify and tell you that the fatal shots to Anthony Williams, to his head, that enters in the back of his head and exits at the top, blowing out the front passenger window, was fatal. And that the additional wounds that are consistent with the trajectories going through the vehicle, he's already dead. There is a post-mortem inflicted gunshot wounds. Basically, Christine Bradley is saying those fatal shots were fired from the back seat of the vehicle. Uh, she's telling the jury, the medical examiner is going to say that, that they were not killed by these shots fired at, from outside the vehicle. So if your client is sitting in the back seat of the car, the location from which those fatal shots were fired, how do you contest that? Well, that's very, very circumstantial. It's going to be very hard to prove uh, to the satisfaction of a jury that the shots were actually fired from a particular location in a car. When you think about it, a person could shoot from the front part of the back seat or the back part of the back seat or the back part of the front seat. It's all going to be somewhat speculative. So I, I don't see the great strength in that particular item of evidence standing alone. In circumstantial cases like this kind, it's the combination. It's the aha factor. It's the fact that the jury sits and listens to one piece of circumstantial evidence and says, hmm, interesting. Second piece, that, that seems compelling. And, and when you get to the third piece, they do the aha, wow, yeah. Together, it seems very compelling. So it's the combination of factors. Standing alone, the evidence of the backseat doesn't seem to carry uh, all that much weight. Social media messages are also a big part of this case, according to the prosecution. And there's one message in particular that the prosecution says amounts to a confession. One individual, and specifically, sends out, and I want to quote the message exactly that you will hear and says right after this yo homie you good let me know something and so ladies and gentlemen this is where context matters what does that mean if you work at google and you say my whole floor is coding that's a good thing if you work at Broward General Hospital and you say my whole floor is coding, that is a bad thing. The context around the messages matters. So in the context of this message, this individual is reaching out, asking if Mr. Demons is good after he's been tagged in multiple social media posts about this driver through this shooting. And Mr. Demons responds very succinctly. I did that. Shh. All right, Professor, how do you fight back against that? Well, that's hard to fight against because that is almost a summary of the prior evidence. The prior evidence is all circumstantial. And here you have a statement, a direct statement. It's ambiguous, to be sure. And if the statement alone were introduced into evidence, uh, it could be interpreted in multiple ways. 
And remember, too, that proof beyond a reasonable doubt doesn't require that each piece of evidence establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. This wouldn't do that. It requires that the evidence all taken together proves beyond a reasonable doubt. And if I'm the prosecutor, I use that. It's not a confession by any means. It's a misnomer to call it a confession. Use that piece of evidence which may constitute something close to an admission, not a confession, something that could be interpreted as incriminating. And I would use that to tie together the other circumstantial um, evidence. And, you know, when you get evidence from the mouth, pen, or uh, email of somebody themselves, it, it's far more compelling than evidence directed against them by other people. This really does put also a burden on the defendant to explain. Uh, and that's one thing as a defense attorney you never want, because that may incline the jury to say, gee, this is something he could explain. Let's hear from him. And if he doesn't take the stand, obviously. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That can be, uh, although the jury is instructed never to infer guilt from the failure to take the stand, that could, taken together with everything else, become an important piece of evidence. I feel as well that that the defense has to explain that. And I don't know how they explain it unless they call an an expert and something to talk about social media. And maybe he's just, you know, maybe this is all bluster or maybe he's joking. I, I have no clue. So how do you explain that, that if you don't want your client taking the stand? Very difficult. I would not put an expert on. If you put an expert on, it just highlights the fact what do you need an expert? Why don't you put the defendant on the stand to explain? What do you need a third party uh, to explain? So I would not uh, put an expert on. Um, I would either, if you could, and the facts, I don't know enough about the facts to know whether there's any possibility of putting a defendant on the stand. But if not, uh, I think then the, the burden falls to the defense lawyer to try to offer an explanation, which you're entitled to do in closing argument. And so, but it's risky. It's risky. There's, there's no perfect way of responding to a piece of evidence like that. There's a, an old um, uh, uh, stuffed fish experience when people have a stuffed fish on their mantle and the plaque and the plaque says, I'd still be swimming if I had only kept my mouth shut. And I'm sure the defense attorney is saying that right now, if only he hadn't written that uh, on social media, if he hadn't said that, uh, in that case, it's not your mouth shut. It's your, obviously, uh, social media. But that is uh, is damning. It's not by itself conclusive, but and that's why it's not a confession. But taken together with uh, other circumstantial evidence, 
it could help put context, as the prosecutor said, put context on the other evidence. In this next clip, the defense talks about how they think this investigation was a mess. And this is really right up your alley because uh, you guys claim this in the O.J. Simpson case as well. So let's take a listen. Three years after arresting this young man and sticking him in a cell, the state looks at its case and says, oh man, this looks a little incompetent. Miramar police seems to have botched this investigation and they call the Broward Sheriff's Office and ask them to come and look at the investigation upon which this entire prosecution rests. And he looks at it and he says he instantly knew he had to start from scratch. I think his words were, it was the worst thing I had seen in my life. If all of that is accurate, that the Broward Sheriff reviews this case at the request of the state attorney's office, and the sheriff is saying, this investigation is a mess. I've never seen anything this bad. If that is indeed the case, wow. I mean, aren't you as a defense attorney going to put the Broward County Sheriff up there and say, tell us what you meant by that? Well, or not, uh, or just argue to the jury that um, what you think he meant by it, because you don't put somebody on unless you know what he's going to testify to. We don't know what he's going to testify to. You know, arguments about messy prosecution can cut both ways. It can create sympathy uh, in the jury's mind saying, you know, these guys aren't particularly good, but look what they came up with. They have that statement uh, on the um, social media. They have the uh, material about the cell phones. You know, they didn't do a very good job, but the evidence seems to point in, in the direction of guilt. So it's it's often an argument that that cuts both ways. I've done, I think now, about 35 homicide cases, either murder or attempted murder, and I've won vast majority of them. And mostly you win those cases, not based on the sloppiness of the investigation, because that's something that the jury can, can, can be sympathetic to. But you have to focus the jury very, very hard on alternate explanations of the evidence. Although the burden's on the government, when do you have a substantial amount of evidence, the burden really shifts in the minds of the juries to the defense. And the defense has to present a plausible alternative theories that allow the jury to give meat to the bones of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And um, I don't know enough about this case to know whether the defense attorney can do that. But I think just talking about how messy the investigation was, uh, is not going to uh, resonate that, uh, that well with the jury in light of the evidence that they did come up. And we've seen plenty of cases over the years where there were a lot of mistakes in criminal investigations, a lot of missteps, missed opportunities, messy police work, and the state was still able to obtain a conviction. Uh, we've seen that right. many times. No, there's no question about that. And in fact, it's interesting because juries tend to be sympathetic to uh, 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 prosecutors and they know how hard the job is. They know that the criminal defendants do everything in their power to try to muddy the waters. And, and often juries are prepared to see through investigative blunders. I've, I've had the same experience uh, seeing cases that were extremely sloppy, but the jury in the end, in the end, votes for conviction. Mostly I've done appeals from those cases. I've been able to use the sloppiness to raise appellate issues with sophisticated judges. Uh, it's, a, it's very different 
um, when you have jurors uh, who have life experience, sometimes more life experience than the judges, but they don't have the legal sophistication. So, you know, these are issues that require very delicate thinking on the part of the defense attorney, how to respond to this, how not to contribute to the what the prosecution has said, how to make sure at the very least that you don't make it easier for the jury to convict based on uh, their sympathy for the difficult job prosecutions have. After all, finding murderers, even with new technology and cell phones and DNA, is not that easy. And I think most jurors do sympathize with police who are there to protect them, with prosecutors who are there to protect them, and not so much with defense attorney. And so you have to be able, if you're a defense attorney, to shift that presumption and make the jury identify with you saying you're there to protect the average citizen um, from being convicted based on surmise or lack of reasonable doubt. Well, Professor Alan Dershowitz, uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us here on Sidebar. We appreciate it. Well, keep doing great work. It's very important for the American public to see trials. You know, as you know, I'm hoping that the Donald Trump trial will be on television as well, because the American public have a right to see so important a case. And uh, I look forward to, if that happens, you covering it, calling on me to give my input, even though, as you know, I was one of Donald Trump's. <clears throat> lawyers in the first impeachment, but I'm looking forward to seeing if that case eventually ends up on television as it should. Well, we would, of course, like to see that televised. Obviously, the federal courts don't allow cameras, but this is unprecedented. Maybe in New York, uh, in Manhattan, they will allow it to be televised. That would be great because we have a former president of the United States for the first time ever facing criminal charges. So we hope that it will be televised as well. Remember, too, that the Supreme Court has made exceptions. Generally, the Supreme Court doesn't allow its deliberations to be broadcast. But in the case seeking to overrule Roe versus Wade, they made an exception. And they did in the public interest. And it was fascinating to hear live with a couple of second delay um, the arguments in the Supreme Court. And uh, I think there are rooms for rules for exception. There's no absolute rule uh, that's binding. Um, it is possible that the courts could allow uh, the trial of a former president and a potential future president to be on television so that every American can watch it. It would be the right thing to do. And we are big fans and advocates and proponents of cameras in the courtroom because that lets so the much. public see and be educated about how the system works. And I, I am a big advocate of cameras, always have been. Professor Dershowitz, again, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Law & Crime Sidebar Podcast. You can listen to and download Sidebar on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always watch it on Law & Crime's YouTube channel. I'm Anjanette Levy, and we will see you next time.